the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. The woman was weary. She'd spent the evening at the Lion's Corner House in Piccadilly, and the large clock outside Café Monaco told her it had just gone two in the morning. Time to go home. Taxi! An airman approached her, a man with rather sharp, pointed features beneath a sweep of dark hair. Which way are you going? They were heading roughly in the same direction, and so the woman agreed to share her cab with him. I should have been back by 11 o'clock. The airman murmured inside the vehicle. But he cannot have been very concerned about being AWOL. For he then asked... Could I spend an hour with you? I will give you two pounds as a present. Between jobs at the time, the woman occasionally took men back to her flat for money, and this seemed like a reasonable offer, so she permitted him to accompany her up the stairs to her apartment. We can't be sure of the address nor even the woman's name. Those particulars were entered on a police report about her brush with death, but then redacted with thick black swipes of a pen for reasons unknown. We do know that the woman noticed that her guest's boots were shabby. Too shabby, she thought, given his posh manner of speech. When she went to remove her skirt, he stopped her. That won't be necessary. I only want to talk. I've been drinking too much. The woman was surprised, but she was happy to play along. The airman told her that he'd been at the Brasserie Universelle that evening and left his gas mask behind. Won't you get into trouble being out in the street without one? She asked. No one will see me at this time of night. The woman studied his face. He looked tired, especially around the eyes, and it seemed she wanted to be kind. I have one here you can have. 
She gave him a spare military gas mask she just happened to have lying around, and they sat and chatted a little while longer. But all the while, the man let slip no detail of the true events of the last few hours. For the man sat quietly talking in this flat, had tried to strangle Greta Hayward in the street, and then Catherine Mulcahy in her own bed. And undiscovered in her flat by Hyde Park, Doris Schwane's body lay torn and broken, just as he'd left her. As 4am approached, the man made his move, making sure he had the woman's name, telephone number, and probably noting down her address with care, Gordon Cummins crossed the room and left. He had what he needed from this woman. He would let her live, for she was his alibi. Donning his overcoat and picking up his new gas mask, the darkness of the night swallowed him up once more. This is the seldom told story of women in World War II who were killed not by the enemy, but by husbands, lovers and strangers wearing the uniform of their own side. It's also the tale of a particular string of murder victims that history has swept from view. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. And I'm Alice Fines. And you're listening to Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper. The Edgware Road thronged with traffic. Bicycles wove through a long line of buses and taxis that, nose to tail, inched north from Hyde Park towards the suburbs. Who taught you to drive your grandmother? Hurry up now, Johnny, come along, really. I haven't got enough to do. Be a good boy and don't keep stopping. Harried housewives pounded the pavements, scolding their children as they struggled under the burden of that day's grocery shopping. Don't want me telling your father what a bother you've been to me today. It rang with the excited chatter of theatre-goers off to see variety acts at the Metropolitan. And it pulsated, too, with vice. In hotels and furnished rooms, even in Hyde Park itself, women sold sex to working-class men and more affluent clients alike. The Edgware Road was grimier and seedier than nearby Soho. Accommodation here could be had cheaply making it an economical workplace for women looking to earn tidy profits in the sex trade. Perhaps this was why Doris Robson chose 240 Edgware Road as her home. In her late 20s, she appears to have seen an advert for a... Large bed-sitting room, very comfortable. ..and set herself up there. Doris had been born in England's northeast. 
She'd likely experienced prejudice growing up because, raised by a single mother and an aunt, she'd been born out of wedlock. She was illegitimate, a bastard. While some were kind to single mothers, moralizers pronounced them bad women, warning that their offspring were tainted and would only grow up to be trouble. But now, Doris was making her own way in the world, and she'd totally cast off that childhood identity. She introduced herself to her new next-door neighbour, Peggy Hemmings, not as Doris, but as Olga. Perhaps Doris wanted to create an air of continental mystique and sophistication. Olga suggested roots in Central or Eastern Europe, the name of an exiled white Russian countess, even. Tall, willowy and fair-haired, Doris was said to be refined and well-educated. She was also hot-tempered. Olga was temperamental and at times was very moody. Neatly dressed and manicured, Doris projected an image of glamour. But occasionally, the mask slipped and her poise and confidence would falter. When she walked, she stooped a little, as though embarrassed by her statuesque frame and hoping to appear more dainty. Doris seems to have enjoyed life in London and was known to peruse the grand West End apartment store Selfridges. Oh, I like that suit. It's nice, isn't it? That look good on you. Oh, I love Lily of the Valley. My favourite scent. But apparently, her modest upbringing had left a lasting impression. According to Peggy, Doris was thrifty. Seldom she brought any new clothes and was careful when spending. Even though Peggy didn't know Doris by her real name, she believed they shared a unique and profound bond. I do not think that any woman knew her private affairs as I did. Doris indeed kept her secrets closely guarded, presenting one face to certain people in her life and a different face entirely to others. The Poulo pot is very popular, sir, but I will also recommend filet de saumonet. Wonderful. The bar at Odonino's was one of Doris's favourite haunts. A filet de boeuf richelieu for you, madam, and uh, asperge anglaise sauce divine. Very good. The luxurious hotel and restaurant marketed itself as the centre of the world and boasted an exquisite cabaret, the finest cuisine in Europe and nightly dancing. The establishment stood proudly behind grand colonnades on Regent Street at the confluence of racy Soho, ritzy Piccadilly and stately Mayfair. According to one friend, Doris liked to pick up clients here. Because they were nicer class. And those clients had to be of a nicer class because her services were expensive. Olga was not the ordinary type, said Peggy Hemmings. She had whips and tight-fitting corsets and often she told me she enjoyed unusual methods. Doris's methods may not have been the norm, but they were far from unusual. In fact, they were a long-established feature of the London sex scene. In the Victorian era, certain brothels had become well-known for providing so-called perversions. Establishments like Mary Jeffrey's house in Chelsea were frequented by a prominent and influential clientele who visited for bondage, caning and whipping. And when, in the 1930s, 
Parisian Marthe Watts came to London, she was surprised to discover just how many of her clients had a penchant for masochism and domination. One wanted her to file her nails to points and gouge at his skin until he bled. Others asked to be bound and beaten. Mart had worked all over the world, but even she was surprised by the frequency of these requests. In Italy and Spain and even North Africa, I had never seen anybody who wanted this. Doris might have been taking her West End clients back to the comparatively dingy Edgware Road, but she was charging them handsomely for the privilege. She left a little book of names and telephone numbers of the men that visited her. She used to get good money for what she did. For instance, £10 would not be exceptional for one meeting. Compared to the wages of the Great Depression, £10 would be roughly equivalent to $2,000 today. That book of names and telephone numbers was important too. Doris met her clients in bars and restaurants, but she also liked to make appointments over the telephone. The use of such technology was increasingly common in sex work. More people had phone lines than ever before, and crucially, they could make calls from within the privacy of their own homes. Call girls even placed carefully veiled adverts in the windows of convenience shops and in newspapers, letting potential clients know how they might be reached. In September 1935, 29-year-old Doris met retired businessman Henri Joannet at a restaurant on the West End's Oxford Street. Lovely to meet you. Pleasure's all mine. Henri had been married and divorced once before. The introduction was made by a mutual friend. It was love at first sight on both sides. Or so went the story. In reality... Henri had been one of Doris's clients, visiting her rooms at 240 Edgware Road. Henri was over 30 years older than Doris. He'd been born in Paris but had grown up in Britain, and his sister and parents lived in London too. Even so, he didn't hold British citizenship until 1907, when, at the age of 26, he was naturalised. I, Henri Alfred Joanne, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty the King Edward, his heirs and successors. Historian Dr Ginger Frost says the decision to pledge this loyalty to the Crown and become legally British might have been a response to a new law. The British passed an act in 1905 called the Aliens Act, which forced those who were not British citizens to, like, register, and you had to check in if you changed your address or anything like that. And if you committed a crime or got caught committing a crime as an alien, you could be deported. They were so determined to get rid of anybody who was problematic, they would even deport paupers. So if you landed on the workhouse and you were an alien, they would consider deporting you. It seemed unlikely that Henri would end up in the workhouse. He'd enjoyed a career as a successful businessman and lived in the sumptuous districts of Kensington and Mayfair. But becoming British would have made life simpler for him. And a few years later, in 1913, Henri had a brush with the law that might have made him feel relieved to now be a citizen. The motor car zoomed along the country lane. A panicked cyclist who'd never seen or heard such a vehicle in his life 
feared he would be crushed, and he drove into the hedge at the roadside. Bloody lunatic! What the bloody hell? Police Constable Russell watched as the car hurtled into the distance. He noted that the automobile was going too fast for anyone to stop it. It was proceeding at a furious rate of perhaps 30 miles an hour. The frightened cyclist picked himself out of the thicket and dusted himself down. Constable Russell went to talk to him. All rise. The men inside the vehicle were tracked down and summoned to the local police court. Alfred Sutherland, chauffeur, for driving a motor car at a dangerous speed. Henri Jouanet for a similar offence and aiding and abetting Sutherland. But the prosecution had a problem. It couldn't be sure who had been at the wheel. Henri and his chauffeur said they'd been taking it in turns to drive. If Sutherland could not be convicted, then Henri could not be guilty of aiding and abetting him. Eventually, the bench levied a fine of five pounds on the defendants, and Henri was free to go on his way. His display of chutzpah had won out. That Henri owned a car in the very early days of private automobiles suggests that he was an adventurous man of some means. Indeed, he had an eclectic portfolio of enterprises and was in business with his sister, Law, at a luxury dress shop in Mayfair, said to be patronised by the leading lights of English society. Monsieur and Mademoiselle Joanet will be present each afternoon to advise clients on the latest phases of Paris-London styles. Henri went on to own the Grand Hotel at Concarneau on the coast of Brittany, France. And after he sold this business, he was able to retire and live off his investments. When he fell in love with Doris in the autumn of 1935, he'd been a gentleman of leisure for some years. Though Henri was content to buy sex from Doris, such women were not to be considered marriage material. And so, when he asked her to be his wife, additional terms were laid on top of the standard marriage contract. When I married my wife, it was agreed that she should cease her mode of life and regain her respectability. Doris enjoyed her work, so she must have felt she had something to gain by submitting to this. She seems to have been drawn to the comfort and security of Henri's lifestyle. Perhaps, too, she felt that she might be able to circumvent their agreement and have things her way. Within a couple of months of meeting, they'd wed by licence at Paddington Register Office. On their marriage certificate, 59-year-old Henri made himself 45. Doris subtracted two years from her own age and also invented a father, one who was squarely a respectable professional man. John Robson, she claimed, was a medical practitioner. A proud advert placed in the Hartlepool Northern Daily Mail announced to those back home that little Doris Robson, the daughter of an unwed mother, was now Mrs. Joanet. As if to underline the dangers of the profession she was leaving, on the day that Doris married Henri, a woman called Josephine Martin, thought to be Russian-born but known as French Fifi, was found strangled in the Soho flat where she worked, a silk stocking tied about her neck. The police, who'd arrested French Fifi many times on prostitution charges, thought that a client was likely responsible, 
but her murder remained unsolved. If Henri had read any of the many column inches of newsprint devoted to the killing, he no doubt reassured himself that the life he was providing for his new bride would surely keep her safe from such a grim fate. Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper will be back after this short break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Henri and Doris lived at 14 Bathurst Street, part of an affluent estate of squares and crescents at the edge of Hyde Park. Henri gave his wife sentimental gifts, not necessarily luxury items, but objects with a story, like the distinctive white metal wristwatch he'd purchased years ago from a jeweller in France. The face had no hands and showed only the hours and the minutes. It was a source of mirth for the couple. I could not tell the time very well with it. Henri believed that Doris was keeping her word and had left the sex trade. My wife behaved herself, and I had no reason to think she was consorting with other men. But, curiously, Doris's friend Peggy said that they continued to rent workspace together and that Olga kept in touch with her regular clients. A particular friend of hers was an elderly man who lived at Kensington. Whenever she moved, she always told him. Was Doris continuing to work, but keeping it a secret from Henri? The couple sometimes decamped to hotels on Britain's south coast, so if Doris had occasionally stayed behind in London, she might have had the odd opportunity here and there to see men. In 1938, Henri's mother passed away, and he inherited money from her estate. He seemingly could not resist returning to his old entrepreneurial ways. Henri and Doris purchased a café called Anne Wynne in the charming seaside town of Eastbourne. But the venture was ill-fated. By October, it had failed, and the café's fixtures and fittings, mahogany tables and chairs, the cash till, the cutting-edge electric mixer, a Frigidaire ice cream maker, and even its extensive stocks of jams, syrups, flavourings and chocolate, were sold at auction. Back in 1912, an employee of Henri's dress shop had been charged with altering the accounts, an attempt to earn a quick buck by swindling the business. The collapse of Anne Wynne likewise rang alarm bells for Henri, who took both his landlord and the former owners of the café, a Mr and Mrs Sedgwick, to court. They had conspired to sell him a white elephant. A ruined business that was not worth the money he paid for it said a local paper. It turned out that the Sedgwicks were in serious financial difficulty. They had debts all over Eastbourne, and they defaulted on their rental payments too. They told Henri that the café turned a reasonable profit, and now he believed that these projections were false, and could only have been made dishonestly to induce him to buy the business. Well, fraud is one of the big growth areas of the 20th century. Dr. Mark Rudhouse is a historian at the University of York and an expert in illegal markets, crime and criminal justice in the mid-20th century. 
as the economy becomes more complex, fraud becomes something that's easier to do and pull off. Accounting standards are relatively low. In this particular case, you don't know whether that business was already being used for a fraud. And that's why the turnover may have been misstated. Mark says that fraud saw a particular boom in the 1930s. People struggling to cope with the consequences of the Great Depression cut corners to keep their businesses afloat. And they orchestrated more cynical and elaborate schemes too. The most popular types of fraud in the 1930s are long-firm and short-firm fraud. They're essentially a type of theft. You place orders for goods with suppliers and in the short firm fraud, you place the order, you flog the goods, but you never pay for the goods that you ordered and then you disappear. A long firm fraud does the same thing, but builds up to a bigger payday. So what you do is you create a business, you run it for several months in which you buy stuff, you sell it, you pay your suppliers and you build up credit worthiness. And then you hit them several months in for a huge order, which you then never pay for. And this could be a case where someone has used a business for a long firm or a short firm fraud and then seen another opportunity to make money from it by selling it on to an unsuspecting customer. The Sedgwicks argued that Henri had never asked to see the cafe's accounts which were now conveniently missing, and that, moreover, he was at fault for changing the character of Anne Wynne. Once a traditional tea room, the café now had a rowdy continental ambiance, with gaudy ornaments in the window and loud carpets. Worse still, Henri irked his customers and was a perfect nuisance the whole time, according to Beatrice Sedgwick. In the end, however, the jury sided with Henri, and found the defendants guilty of fraud. They considered that he was entitled to recover the money that he'd paid out for the business. But whether Henri actually received any compensation is not known. At the time of the court case, he said that he'd lost all his capital in the venture and was now practically penniless. Henri and Doris stayed living in Eastbourne a little while longer. And then, in September 1939, war arrived. Henri's investments in France collapsed, and he had to return to work in the capital. It appears that the café's failure, the fraud case, and the loss of Henri's annuity had taken a toll on the relationship. This was not the life that Doris had envisaged, and she complained that Henri was starting to get on her nerves. As the Blitz began, Peggy Hemmings thought that Doris was especially afraid of the bombs. After all, she'd known the trauma of coming under enemy shelling as a child in Hartlepool. And so, in the autumn of 1940, the couple went to live with Doris's mother and her aunt, now retired and residing in the genteel spa town of Harrogate. The Poodle Pod is very popular, sir. By spring 1941, Henri, in need of money, took a position as a manager at Odonino's Regent Street, the hotel restaurant where Doris had once solicited and, humblingly, the type of venue that he had once frequented as a guest, too. Henri sent Doris an allowance in hopes that she would stay behind in Harrogate. He, meanwhile, was living where he worked. But his wife was unhappy with the arrangement and missed London. Three weeks later, 
she pitched up in the city again. She told me she intended to stay in London and had already booked a room in Sussex Gardens. Henri was not impressed. Sussex Gardens was close to their former residence on Bathurst Street, but it also adjoined notorious Hyde Park, C.D. Paddington, and her Edgware Road haunts. Doris had friends here, but more importantly, would be well-positioned for selling sex. Many of her old clients had moved out to the suburbs, but the nearby barracks were full of soldiers looking for a good time. I objected to this, and there was great friction between us. I visited her at this room on several occasions, and by the general atmosphere of the house, I came to the conclusion that my wife was drifting back to her old life. Doris denied the charge. But she told local dressmaker Beatrice Lang a different story. The women met and grew close after Doris returned to London, and they'd drink tea together at Beatrice's lodgings on the Edgware Road. Doris confided to her new friend that she was eyeing a replacement for Henri. The captain, who was a regular client of hers, wanted to take her off the streets. And then one day, said Beatrice, Doris simply vanished. A desperate Henri had obtained a new position at a hotel in a market town south of London, and he'd taken Doris with him. The next time Beatrice saw her friend would be on a cold February night in 1942. As it would turn out, Doris's final night. Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper, will return shortly. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? 
When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nineteen forty-one was nearing its end, and Doris and Henri's relationship was in crisis. Sixty-five-year-old Henri's health had broken down, and he said that they no longer slept together. He continued to be suspicious that Doris had drifted back to ignominy. I begged of her not to return to her old life. The Joannes now went to work at the Queen's Hotel in Farnborough as joint manager and manageress. Doris doesn't appear to have had any professional experience in the industry, but Henri's vouching for her seems to have secured her the position. Many hotels were completely transformed during the Second World War, becoming barracks, headquarters, hospitals, or even rest and recuperation resorts for war-weary servicemen. Those that remained in private hands were in demand. Because eating out was exempt from the restrictions of rationing, luxury hotels served lavish meals of pre-war standards. The rich flocked to these establishments, determined to dine in the style to which they were accustomed. Some even made such hotels their homes for the duration of the war. The Queen's Hotel in Farnborough was a little more staid in character, but it too saw change. Its dining room was filled almost exclusively with service personnel, who lunched on piping hot cream of cauliflower soup served from silver terrines, followed by spaghetti bolognese or boiled bacon a la Boston. And there's a choice of hot fig pudding or cheese for after. Henri and Doris earned decent salaries, plus a bonus, and they were provided with accommodation too. But this wasn't where Doris wanted to be. By now 35 years old, she wasn't prepared to waste her time nor suffer fools, and she clashed with the customers, so much so that within a few months, the couple had resigned. 
And so the Joannes were on the move again and back to London. Henri was appointed manager of the elegant Royal Court Hotel in Kensington. They returned to tree-lined Sussex Gardens and this time rented a ground-floor apartment, one that must, in Henri's eyes, have been more respectable than the dingy room Doris had previously leased. They moved in on January 26, 1942. Their new flat was modest in size, but well-furnished, with parquet flooring and central heating. The bedroom was simple, pink blankets on twin beds, a plaid rug on the floor, and a dressing table where Doris sat and brushed her hair with her green comb missing some teeth, or wrote her correspondence. Her favourite fountain pen was inscribed with the initials DJ. Although the apartment was rented in Henri's name, he did not sleep there. Instead, he had a bed at work, but he would return to Sussex Gardens each evening to dine with his wife. They quickly settled into a routine. Henri would arrive at around 7pm. How was your day, dear? And they would eat their supper and spend a couple of hours together. And then, around 9.30pm, he would head back to the hotel. And so it was on the evening of Thursday, February 12th, 1942. Doris had prepared some vegetable soup, which they ate in their dining room. When it was time for Henri to leave again, she expressed a desire to get some fresh air. So she piled the dirty dishes in the sink and accompanied him round the corner to Paddington Tube Station, where they said their goodbyes and he hopped on the train to work. According to Henri, he urged her to hurry home. Doris promised she would, but she had other ideas. She turned and headed towards the Edgware Road, a striking figure in a dark cloth and squirrel fur coat, black turban hat and heavy kid gloves. She might have hoped to pick up a client, but instead she crossed paths with her dear friend Beatrice Lang. Apparently, Doris had just seen a policeman talking to a young girl, for she warned Beatrice that the officer would likely be highly suspicious of a woman wandering these streets alone at night. Don't go up there. You might get in trouble, she said. And so the pair continued on together, stopping at the Cumberland Hotel for a quick drink. I'll have another whiskey with a dash of soda, please. Bottoms up! As they drank, Doris hinted at the state of her marriage. She referred to Henri not as her husband and equal but as an old man who kept her and who increasingly grated on her too. The women did not linger at the Cumberland and soon Doris was headed back towards her home. Hello, stranger. On the way, she bumped into two local women who also solicited in the area and they chatted for a while remarking on the terrible cold. Ruby Grant asked if Doris was going to call it a night, and she remembered Doris's parting words to her. I'm going to try and get off before I get home. It was around 10.30pm. Few people were about, and the streets were quiet. Ruby watched Doris as she headed in the direction of Sussex Gardens and disappeared into the darkness. When Henri Joanet arrived home from work the following evening, 
he found the flat empty and oddly still. The morning's milk delivery was still on the front doorstep. Inside, it was dark. Doris! He called into the gloom. No reply. Clicking on the lamp in the dining room, he felt a chill of alarm. Light spilled over the table, illuminating a milk jug and some biscuits, the remnants of the previous evening's meal, just as they had left them. Apprehensive, Henri moved along the passage to the bedroom. The door was locked and the key was missing. Doris? Doris, are you in there? Doris! Are you in there? All was quiet and still. In the kitchen, too, were the ghostly traces of a shared life halted in its tracks. Two soup bowls, two spoons, two cups, all piled up, all unwashed. Something was terribly wrong. Henri rang for his neighbour. Mrs Kirby, the housekeeper, opened the door to a man who, ordinarily dignified and upright, was now fearful and agitated. Have you seen my wife? The housekeeper hadn't seen her all day. And she'd also noticed that the shutters in the front room had remained closed. Together they tried different keys to the bedroom door, but to no avail. Eventually, Mrs Kirby telephoned the police. Henri stood on the doorstep, a forlorn figure awaiting their arrival. When the officers broke down the door to the bedroom, they blocked Henri from entering after them. Doris lay diagonally across the bed, the sheets around her stained with blood. She'd been stabbed and slashed and strangled and, knotted into a ligature around her neck, was a silk stocking. Henri was heartbroken. In his pain, maybe even in guilt, he eulogised their union. The papers that rolled off the presses spoke not of Doris's dissatisfaction, but instead of an ideal marriage. We were perfectly happy and have never had a disagreement, Henri told them. In the Sussex Gardens flat, detectives hunted for fingerprints and other clues to build a case against their prime suspect, leading aircraftman Gordon Cummings. Officers took an inventory. Money and personal effects like that white metal wristwatch, the one that was hard to read, were missing from the Joannes' home. A light dust had settled on Doris's dressing table. In that coating of grey were silhouette outlines where once had been her green comb with its missing teeth and her writing set. At an RAF barracks not so very far away, a blue wool tunic was waiting to be found. In one of its pockets was an elegant and well-loved fountain pen bearing the initials D.J. Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper is hosted by me, Hallie Rubenhold. And me, Alice Fiennes. It was written and produced by Alice Fiennes and Ryan Dilley, with additional support from Courtney Garino and Arthur Gompertz. Kate Healy of Oakwood Family Trees aided us with genealogical research. 
Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. The show was recorded at Wardour Studios by David Smith and Tom Berry. You also heard the voice talents of Ben Crow, David Glover, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. Much of the music you heard was performed by Ed Gocken, Ross Hughes, Christian Miller and Marcus Penrose. They were recorded by Nick Taylor at Porcupine Studios. Pushkin's Ben Tolliday mixed the tracks. And you heard additional piano playing by the great Barry Wise. Hi, Barry. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Eric Sandler and Daniela Lucan. We'd also like to thank Michael Buchanan Dunn of the Murder Mile podcast, Lizzie McCarroll, Catherine Walker at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and the Earby Historical Society. Bad Women is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please rate and review the show and spread the word about what we do. And thanks for listening. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.